Hi, welcome to another episode of Bjorfest. Um, today we have something really special for you. It's a look at a side of the brewing industry that maybe doesn't get all the attention in some ways, but gets a lot in other ways. And I'm talking about yeast and specifically about the business of yeast. Um, as you know, yeast is one of the critical components in fermenting the beer first, but also giving it its flavor, giving it its, you know, the different styles rely very much on different yeasts. But since the brewers themselves are generating that yeast as they ferment, what is the business model? Well, how does the business of yeast work? Um, and specifically when you have the newer yeasts coming along, like you have the mix of old standard yeasts and then you have the new fikes coming along and that. How does all that work together and what is the actual job of the yeast lab? Um, and to discuss all of that, I'm really, really lucky um, to have Lance Shainer, who's the founder and owner of Omega Yeast. That's one of the leading yeast labs. As you'll hear, they have a really, they, they take an awful lot of care on quality and on research and all that. You'll hear all that through the through the chat. Um, so really lucky to have him. And I hope you'll enjoy the whole chat. I think there's a lot of information in there. Probably plenty more I could have asked, but uh, we we had time and also there was so much coming. I think you'll find that, you know, your brain works later and comes up with the questions you should have thought of, of course. But anyway, all that over, let's talk to Lance about beer. Okay, um, welcome to anybody who's watching this. Um, I actually have a very special guest with me today, um, someone really excited to talk about. Um, it's Lance Shainer, the founder and owner of Omega Yeast, who you probably will have heard of. Um, um, I don't know, Lance, how you'd describe yourself. Is Would you say you're specialist yeast lab or? Uh, I, I, I call us all purpose, I suppose. I mean, uh, just because we have historically done a lot of research into new strains so that would be kind of the specialist part of it. but we you know propagate all the kind of the traditional strains for that brewers have expected to and and do lab services so we're kind of all purpose right and um yeah maybe we should start with just what is the background like how did you found omega um what what was what's your background is it coming from a brewing from a lab from yeah my, my interest in beer started in college as it does for a lot of people <laughs> um so my one of my roommates and I got interested in homebrewing and joined a homebrew club at University of Illinois. Um, it was actually at that time a an official university shank, sanctioned club. Uh, so they actually had a booth on quad day and whatnot. But um, I've learned since that they don't do that anymore. Right? You know, I guess the the association of a university with a club whose you know, purpose and drinking yeah. beer uh, gave somebody the willies. So they. Uh, they, uh, it's a, the club still exists, but it's not a university. Um, but that was my introduction into, you know, making beer and working with you, just getting interested in the process. Um, so, and I did microbiology as an undergrad. Um, so that was the, that's what kindled everything. And then I uh, went to graduate school uh, where I ended up studying yeast. That wasn't actually even my intention going there, uh, but um, I ended up doing one of my rotations through a, a lab studying yeast, and it was more in the human health context, but still it was a lot of hands-on with um, yeast and continued to make, you know, beer that way. Um, but then we're going to have to skip forward a little bit. So I actually took a detour to law school, um, ended up being a, a patent attorney, a biotechnology patent attorney for 
um, four years after I got my JD. Um, so then we get to where I had a, a just kind of a chance conversation with one of my colleagues at the firm who was a, a partner in a venture starting a craft brewery in the Chicago area. Um, so we were just at an event and talking about his thing and where he was going to be getting his yeast. And it was literally that conversation that sparked the idea to, to start Omega Yeast because there was uh, nobody else in the Midwest even doing it. And, um, you know, there are no liquid yeast providers. There's a couple out West, uh, one in the Rocky Mountains, and that was it at the time. Um, so uh, we started out just providing locally in Chicago. There were, you know, the really rapidly growing beer scene. This would have been around 2013. Um, so there was just enough locally that we thought we could get off the ground by serving just local breweries and grow from there and growing from there to be international. Right. And was that, I suppose we can get our own later to, to the actual types of yeast, but like, was that kind of, you were selling just standard, standard, regular yeast. There was nothing, nothing different in theory about your yeast. And we can talk yeah. about how you propagate it later. But, uh... Yeah. Um, yeah. I would say at the start, um, I mean, there was a difference in the way we did things like some of the other existing labs would essentially make large batches of it uh, and, you know, kind of divvy it out and then sell it as it was ordered. So, you know, it might, take them a month or two months to sell it. So some people are getting two month old yeast, whereas we right from the start, our goal was to produce fresh yeast made to order. Uh, okay. So, you know, we couldn't ship it immediately, uh, but it, but our process is fast. So we could ship a fresh pitch out within a week of receiving the order. And the brewer knows every time it's going to be fresh and made for them and they get very consistent results that, that way. So that our process kind of uh, differentiated us from the start compared to what and is that still differentiating you? I mean, you're, I take it you're not the only people who are doing that now, but you're one of the few. One of the few, for sure. I, I mean, I think maybe there's like one other lab in the U.S. that kind of does it similarly. But um, but yeah, that's uh, so that's still differentiating. And I think one of the reasons why we've had some success is people have results because our yeast is. Right. Yeah, makes sense. So I guess one of the things I have is, yeah, about that, I mean, if you have... I, I don't know how I'm going to phrase this. Yeah, if you have that kind of standard, for lack of a better word, standard yeast, I mean, where does the lab come into this? I, I'm always curious about this because the brewers themselves, obviously, when they use the yeast, they produce more of it than they started. So where do the brewers... I, I guess I'm interested in why more brewers don't kind of use the yeast harvested and you themselves oh. where, where the advantage of the yeast they very much do uh i mean they and it's i mean a lot of times it's their goal to stretch it out as far as they can so you know they might uh but it depends on the brewery and the types of beers they're brewing some styles just aren't very uh, amenable to having a good crop at the end so they might have to come back more frequently uh to yeah. get a fresh pitch but generally speaking if they're brewing you know kind of uh you know, blonde ales that aren't heavily dry hopped, like they'll take it out eight to 10 generations before they'll come back to the lab to start again. So, I mean, we're not selling, uh, with some exceptions, a, a fresh pitch for every brew, brew what our customers are doing. They are uh, stretching it out. Right. And if I'm right, I mean, the history of that is goes back to Carlsberg, doesn't it? It's that they, they figure out how to isolate these and they kind of keep the, the core batch, but... And I guess that's what you're doing. You have a core batch, do you? And then you kind of use yeah. as a starter and you you create, but you have a, a frozen or fridge or whatever. Exactly. So, yeah, so we have a frozen stock that essentially is, you know, stuck in time. I mean, it's not changing. So every time they come back to us, they're going back to that original generation, which is where, you know, 
I don't know, this is a kind of interesting philosophic, philosophical topic too, because the reason we have such a wide variety of yeast strains right now is because that's not how it's always been done, right? Yeah. There's been cereal repitching by the same brewery for you know, decades and decades. Um, and that yeast has changed. I mean, every time it reproduces, it makes errors in its uh, genetics and those errors lead to divergence of traits. Um, so that's why we have all these yeast strains. But now that we have them, we've kind of, you know, adopted a different uh, way of going about it. And look, and we look for consistency, right? A brewer wants consistency in their product. And so they are out eight to 10 generations and they start to see things shifting. You know, the flocculation is different. The ester output is different. They'll go back to the beginning and start again to have the same product. Right. And that's when they come back to you then, because they, I presume then they, uh, they don't keep their, or, or most breweries don't keep a frozen, a frozen yeah. stock. I mean, it, it requires, you know, some know-how and some specialized equipment and, and all that stuff. And, you know, they're trying to make that rather yeah. than... <laughs> okay, yeah. so it's, well, that, that's what it comes down to. Yeah, that's not... Keeping yeast isn't their speciality, isn't their, their expertise. Right. That's what you're supposed to do. So, yeah, so you're producing it on demand, but you're also... You also sell to home brewers, but that's not yeah. on demand. Right. So that that's definitely, you know, functions a little differently where we do have to have more of a predictive model for, you know making enough that it's all going to go out the door as fresh as possible because then it's going to go to a homebrew shop where it sits on the shelf until a homebrewer picks it up. Um, you know, unfortunately, there's just not a way to apply our, our brewery model with the homebrewer. It's just not practical on that level. So, um, yeah, so it's definitely different there where we have to do, you know, a lot of make just enough to have it going out. as fresh. Yeah, and you have a lot of strains. I mean, I don't know. I didn't count them, but I suppose you have about 40 strains there on your website, is it? Yeah, on the well, on the homebrew side, yeah, it's probably in the neighborhood of forty strains that we make available. Um, the whole the the catalog available to brewers, I think, is probably around eighty strains now. But again, that's you know we can, I mean, we could have twice that and still manage just because we're making it when they order it. Um, but homebrew, it gets that's why we have a more limited set for the homebrew side because it gets unwieldy the more you get. Then we would have stuff just sitting on the shelf and getting old and serving nobody. Yeah, right, and that's. Yeah, so so I guess you you see in advance like any trends coming down on what what way beers are going just because people are buying different different yeast to try and say do a stout versus a an IPA versus a sour of some sort. You, yeah, I would. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say our our sales kind of reflect the trends. Uh, I mean, just based on the strains. So uh, lagers have in in the U.S. craft lager has been something that's probably grown. A lot. It's still everything's still dominated by IPA and by hazy IPA in particular. Um, but lagers have definitely grown. I don't know what that percentage is, but we've definitely make more lager yeast now than uh, right. Yeah. Okay. So I suppose the other thing, I, I, if we can come around to it, I mean, some of the the yeast you have, the particular one that, that the reason I conjured you was the Overu one. Mm -hmm. You you are you're the only people who have that. Am I right? Uh, they're well, officially, <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is another story I, I was hoping to bring in, but officially you're the only people who have, like, so yeah. I, I, right. so, um, yeah. And uh, so Aldona had reached out to us, uh, the brewer of Yovaru and well, through the consulate in Philadelphia, which is, I mean, another kind of funny story. Cause it's not, it's not every day that, you know, we're just a yeast lab. We don't expect to be, uh, contacted by any sort of like foreign, you know, consulate um, about yeast. So, you know, there's like the, the first reaction when they're reaching out to you is like, Rubian, is this some weird catfishing thing? <laughs> like, like what, what's the angle here? Um, but it, it, you know, it just turned out that I think brewers and drinkers that had 
had made their way through Yoru had uh, talked to Aldona about how the beer is unique and and she I think attributes that uh, unique quality at least in part to the yeast that she uses which had been kind of maintained uh, you know like we're talking about maintaining yeast for generations had just been maintained internally by repitching for a long time um, and so and you know people had said well, you should make this available to people um, and she was pretty protective of it. Um, but, um, reached, you know, somehow this conversation then, uh, got transferred to the consulate. They reached out to us, uh, to see about making this yeast available more broadly. And Aldona gets a, uh, royalty for the, for the sales. Um, and I mean, IP is a little complicated, intellectual property is a little, com uh, complicated around yeast, uh, a naturally occurring yeast strain like that isn't something you can patent, um, right. So, you know, it's, Aldona doesn't really have the means uh, or the legal standing to be able to sue other people that use her yeast. So she could have, you know, some brewer, home brewer could have brought back some beer with them and harvested that yeast and traded it to whoever they want. There's nothing anybody can do about that. It's just, okay. there's just no protections for that. Um, but, uh, and we recognize that too, but I mean, another, a competitor could take a pack of Yoveru yeast and start selling it too. Um, one of the protections we do have in intellectual property is uh, trademark. So, okay. um, you know, we have, we filed a trademark on behalf of Aldona. So she owns the trademark for Yovaru, you know, brewing yeast. Um, so, you know, nobody else can sell something they're calling Yovaru brewing yeast. So that comes with some sort of advantage and protection, but the strain itself, you know, there's just the, no means of protecting the, the strain yeah. itself. Yeah. That, that's what that's the part I was really curious about. I was trying to wrap my head around like how do you how how did the licensing work and the protection? Because I was there, I, I visited her summer before last, and that was when I started talking. She was mentioning yourselves, and um, yeah, she said that after she did the deal with yourself, there was some neighbor who <laughs> sold his yeast under the same name, and it was very confused for a while. Or that. Yeah, and I, I think I do recall at some point there was a very a small, I think it was essentially like a garage operation in the uh, New England somewhere, um, calling it that. And we basically told them like, look, we've got, you know, Aldona has a trademark on this. You cannot call it that. Right, um, and, and, and they were, uh, they were actually pretty cordial about it and stopped selling it altogether. Um, uh, I think there might still be another lab selling it, uh, not, obviously not under that name. And again, there's nothing we can do about that other than stressing the fact that we have this relationship with her and just by being nice, you know, she doesn't, she wants, uh, uh by virtue of making this strain available to people, um, you know, to get compensated by royalties yeah. through us. And so we have this kind of exclusive uh, relationship. So, you know, I think that's kept a lot of people away from, uh, making that strain available just, you know, just to be nice. I mean, you know, we, we wouldn't do the same thing if we were on the other yeah. side. It's just, but again, that's all just kind of, uh, nobody has to abide by that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because I suppose like, I mean, anyone watching this, like, yeah, the brewing does tend to be people who are the small people, small breweries, they're all working together. Nobody really sees themselves as in competition or trying to close anyone else down. So it's, right. it's, it's community. So how does a work on that just sticking on the the overview for a moment i mean if i understand right her yeast is it's a mix of strains is it the culture um, of multiple strains or am i wrong or it, I, I, it, I mean it probably depends on maybe which package you get like what was sent to us was actually a pure 
yeast. Um, okay. it, it, you know, it, I mean, just given the conditions under which it's used, that might not always be the case. I mean, there is actually lactobacillin in the sample we got, which, uh, again, is not shocking considering it's a no boil beer, it's a fermentation. Um, so there, but so there was lacto in it, but it was a single strain yeast. Okay. Doesn't mean it's necessarily always that way, but that's how it arrived to us. Okay, I was wondering because I, I had got in my head somewhere that it was multiple strains, and then I was wondering how you selected them out or what you did to to kind of select what it, it was pre-selected essentially. Yeah, it, okay. exactly. So with that, that's true. I mean, we we do, we do have that issue with like Norwegian Kvike, which are um multi-strain blends so we have to make those considerations with that kind of stuff but yogurt okay. what do you do with the quike then do you do you separate out the strains and sell just individual strains or do you manage to keep the whole culture so we we do lots of things with those so the first one we sold uh, we call hothead if you are familiar with the nomenclature of quike that's actually the stranda strain um and um at that time, that was actually a single strain from the start. So when that was originally sent to the NCYC UK, uh, that that was just a single strain. I think a single isolate ended up growing. So it was, I mean, one of the neat things is like every pack of hothead or uh, that you see out there is a, a direct relative of that single cell that survived on that plate that was sent to the NCYC. Um, so in that case, you know, nothing to do. It was a single strain, nothing to worry about maintaining any sort of original blend. Um, Voss, on the other hand, uh, we got directly from Lars and that was two strains. We just selected one. Um, uh, we didn't really see a huge difference between the two. So just in that case, it's just easier to use a single strain, pure blend, um, with Hornendal, that one, uh, is a blend of multiple, uh, strains that we do our best to maintain the, the blend as it came to us. Um, so we do some things different with that than we do others. We we take a freezer stock and streak it on a plate every time we do the propagation and then take a large swath off of that um, to get the culture started, which is not normal microbiology practice where you'd want to start with a single colony so you know it's clonal. Um, so then we do that every time we start a propagation with uh, Hornendal so that we uh, hopefully maintain you know the blend as, as we received it. Um, from Hornadol, we've actually also isolated a strain. So our what we call Lutra is a single strain isolate from the Hornadol blend that has a very kind of neutral profile and wide applicability in styles. So uh, we've kind of done everything with Kvike, yeah. um, you know, maintained cultures. Uh, Espa is another good example where we uh, we were detecting some phenolic quality from it, which is not expected from Kvike yeast. And like actual Kvike yeast don't, they're not phenolic. So, it seemed like there was probably a straggler in there. So we uh, isolated as many strains as we could, found which one was phenolic, and basically removed that from the blend and reconstituted the blend without the phenolic yeast. Um, so, yeah, so it, the, what we've done with Kvike kind of runs the gamut of microbiology. And I guess then you, you see yourself, I mean, you, you wouldn't do that on it, or would you do that? I mean, just for a purely business reason, do you do it because you see yourself having like a, a duty to preserve it or? Or is there just purely business? It sounds like an awful lot of work for the business side. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, all of those things, I guess. Uh, I mean, um, we're—I mean, I think ultimately we're trying to provide a good tool to a brewer for for them to be able to make you know the beer they're trying to make consistently high quality. Um, so you know, it, so in our view, it wasn't—it didn't make business sense necessarily, or even preservation sense to keep ESPA in the way we received it, because even in 
that that phenolic quality is not expected in kvike. Um, so I think to be what you know people would expect from kvike, we needed to cut that use modern techniques to remove that phenolic yeast. Um, whereas, you know, Hornendal, we didn't, it, it was already in good shape and we didn't need to do it. And so we try to maintain it um, as a blend and it's very complex. So we want, we do our best to maintain, to get, uh, you know, as close to an original experience as you can with it. I mean, people are brewing, you know, IPAs and stuff with it here, which is not kind of, <laughs> it's uh, how it was originally handled. So uh, I don't I don't know how well that answers your question, but I, even in, you know, we, we make all these decisions based on uh, getting the brewer the best product. Okay, so the, at the end of the day, you're looking at what you're selling the brewer rather right. than you, you don't see yourself as kind of keeping a museum or anything or some sort no. of archaeologist. Or... No, and I, and I would argue that, that that has kind of been taken up by the NCYC and you, they have a huge library of all these things and, and have, uh, I think they've done everything too, where they'll take the original culture and kind of freeze it away and make it available that way. But they've also got individual isolates pulled out of some of those too. Okay. And, and they're all frozen away for perpetuity. Um, so we're taking a little more of a curative approach, I guess. So we're not making every blend available, every Kvike available, you know, how it was originally formed. It's just not practical for us. Yeah. Um, so we, we choose strains based on um, unique traits. And there's certainly some you know, some of them just kind of are duplicative of others. They can't, they can't, they don't really differentiate themselves over others. So, um, you know, we don't want to just make Kvike available for the sake of making Kvike available. We want it to be each one to have a kind of unique experience. And do you, like when you get a new strain like that, how much, how, how much testing, like making, actually making beers yourself, do you, do you do to, to isolate exactly what, what it will do in a beer? Or do you rely a lot on what, what you've been told? No, we, we do a lot of that. So we, we have a, a position here who's our R&D brewer. His job is to make beer. Uh, so like generally speaking, our function is to make yeast for brewers. But we have somebody here who, who makes beer and does and we're always doing split batch. So we'll make uh, 30 gallons of beer and split it off into six, five gallon fermenters and you know pitch different yeast or do some variable amongst that um, those six uh, fermenters just to to look at this stuff. Um, and, and so we want to know that it's going to, we want to be able to explain to brewers what to expect when we put a product out. So we do kind of run it through its paces. You're not going to set up as a brewery yourself, are you? And have your... No, I mean, you know, we're, we, we've had talk over the years of doing uh, kind of a tap room sort of thing um, where you know, consumers and brewers could come in and, and have that sort of experience internally. Uh, you know, and we were probably thinking about it more around uh, before the pandemic and then the pandemic obviously changed lots of plans like having a, a tap room focused thing in the midst of a pandemic was you know would have been a terrible idea so um you know it's that's been kind of shelved um but we do you know we customers are invited all the time to come over and kind of taste what we're doing so we do still have that outreach with breweries it's just not an open to the public right okay no i just thought it would seem like you know a huge your unique selling point would be quite different from everyone else's in the world, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it might work, I guess, just, uh, but to some degree we, I guess, maybe see it's it as a little bit distraction sort of thing from our primary goal of research yeah. and development. Yeah. I suppose you'd be, yeah, you're then into competition with everyone else as well. And you're just, yeah. Like, and competing with our customers, customers, which, yeah, you don't yeah. want to be fighting them. Right. Yeah. So the, the quite, do you see more, I mean, obviously it, it's relatively new, but, 
what way do you see people using it? I mean, you you mentioned there, you know, isolating what people expect from. But are people using it for to brew specific type of beers, or do you think people are using a lot of it just because it's you know it's got the temperature and speed and that? Are, are they trying to replace it just for that fact? Or yeah, I like I think all of those things. So I think some uh, brewers are using it because they can brew really good beer and turn it around quickly. So they've effectively increased their production capacity just by using these yeasts. Uh, so there's just, you know, that's just a process argument for incorporating it. Um, but they also are tend to be estery, very fruity yeast, which lends well to what is the dominant style in the US, which is IPA. Um, so those fruity qualities of it work well in those styles. Uh, so it's really kind of integrated itself kind of seamlessly into beer culture here because it works in IPAs. To, right. to be frank, if it didn't work in IPAs, it wouldn't be popular. I mean, that's just uh, uh, what the beer culture is like here. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I suppose IPAs are, are everywhere. Though I do, I mean, just talking to various people, I do see more, or maybe, it, maybe it's my perception just because of the people I've been talking to, but I do seem to see a lot more coming in on, yeah, using kind of heritage stuff like yeasts and grains and more organic and local, local coming into it a lot more. I don't know if, yeah. if you see that, but then again... Maybe you don't see that because you're you're dealing with the whole country. So yeah, and um, I mean we see a little bit of that over here, like because there are you know maltsters kind of popping up, and obviously and hops being grown in places other than the Pacific Northwest, and uh, so there is a drive to that too to try to use local supplies. Um, but it's still they're they're still trying to use local supplies to make IPA. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah. Okay. Well, maybe maybe people get around to it. A... Other yeah. styles will, will come in, like you said, laggers are coming up as well. So, Absolutely. yeah. So, do you what do you think then? I mean, IPAs are obviously it's all hop forward. Where so are, do you think the yeast, like the quikes and all that, you're going with? Yeah, more neutral yeasts are are still yeah, and it, ones are yeah. I mean, I think that's where Lutra kind of Lutra Kvike kind of um, makes. It does something a little different or because it is very neutral it lends itself to what we call pseudo lagers so we do have customers that use it to make you know what they might market as a lager uh but it's made with you know a norwegian ale yeast um and allows them to again kind of turn it around a little faster with the same high quality that they would have expected from a longer slower lager um so yeah that that strain is used uh differently i'd say than the other kvikes where people maybe do lean into its neutrality to uh keep the yeast kind of out of the way and put the focus on the rest of the um yeah so does that mean that i mean it's kind of coming back around to the, the brewery side of thing do you see yourself coming up with anything like um or would there be a demand for say an, an omega house yeast that I suppose you overdo is kind of that because you have it but you know something that you've designed would you try and design any yeast cultures that yeah and, to you. <clears throat> yeah and we do uh, and we our r d program we're actually also into um engineering of yeast so this is where you know outside of the us we, uh, unless somebody smuggled it in which we've seen examples of um we uh you know we can't ship these strains outside the us so we definitely have a lot of r d focus on on creating unique strains um the, our first examples were uh, non-phenolic versions of kind of the, the Ashuf strain. Um, so a Belgian yeast that's phenolic, but also nicely fruity. Um, and we took the Hefeweizen, the traditional German Hefeweizen strain, uh, which is, you know, phenolic and a lot of banana esters and, uh, and induced the same point mutation in 
the FDC1 gene, which is responsible for the phenolic quality in Belgian yeast, and and uh, basically neutralize that gene. Um, which and the ale yeast, British ale yeast, Kvikes, lager yeast, all have a naturally occurring mutation in that gene, which makes them not phenolic. Um, so you know we just induced that same mutation in those two strains to create a very new strain because when you get uh, when you have that Belgian Alshuf strain non-phenolic it totally changes the beer uh, because phenolic is a very dominant aroma and when you get that out of the way you start to smell things that you didn't notice were there before it's really got some very nice fruitiness um, and the Hefeweizen strain it really leans all in on that banana aroma without the clove that comes along with it. Um, so that's just a very subtle change and inducing a change that's already existing in other brewing yeast. Um, and you know, what is a very, very simple change just by virtue of, of us having physically manipulated ourselves, it's unavailable in most of the world because they don't, uh, uh, most of the, the world looks at these things as what did you do to it? Uh, or no, how did you change it? Not what change did you make? Um, because, I mean, in my view, it's absolutely silly that there should be any regulation around inducing a point mutation in FDC1, which is already present in the majority of brewing yeast. Um, but that's the state of regulation in a lot of right. the world. What if you'd kind of somehow or other bred it to, to move that? Or would it be fine? Absolutely. And that's one of those uh, other incongruities where we could, uh, you could, yeah, you could breed it and find an isolate that's non-phenolic and then back cross it, you know, many, many, many times to the, the parent you want it to be more like. And in theory, you could get to the point where you'd make a strain that's exactly like the one that we CRISPR point mutationed. Um, and and you'd get the exact same one, that you, like exactly the same. The entire genetic sequence is the same. One can be sold in Europe, one cannot, even though they are identical. And that to me is nonsensical. Yeah. Well, th yeah, the way you the way you kind of explain it there, it does seem a bit kind of nonsensical. I guess is the right word, but um, I suppose it is the way it is. But um, does that mean? I mean, yeah, like you said, there's been some smuggled in, but I mean, yeah, who's gonna? <laughs> how's anybody going to know? And then you claim you found it in the wild or something. Yeah, and we, and we can't control. And again, it's like inherently safe. So you know, if somebody brought it in, just start using it. No, and you couldn't even like the authorities could sequence every brewery's organism, and it's again not going to look any different. It's not going to look like. So I don't know. A lot of this is kind of just we're in a, a an awkward period here where regulations didn't yeah. even contemplate that this sort of stuff was going to be possible. You know, when the regulations were written. Um, so I do think we'll probably see, uh, and we are seeing in some places, changes in those regulations to reflect this reality that we have tools now that can do what we could do with breeding, but do it more precisely, more quickly, and maybe we need a different regulatory regime. In the meantime, we have to assume that Americans will have beers we won't be able to have. That's pretty much the case right now, yes. <laughs> now you're making me jealous. <laughs> um, sorry, I was going to ask something else there, and I've Totally crossed my mind. Yeah, so that that yeast, then you can again, you 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 can only you you come up with a name and a trademark for that, but there is really no you have over it other than you. Well, can... yeah. So with uh, yeah, that that's when there's a lot of nuances too. So on the when when you engineer a strain to have a certain trait, it does become patentable. So in that case, you could file a patent application on the strain that you manipulated and and bar other people from making and selling it. Um, but it still has to cross other patentability hurdles. And with the um, non-phenolic, you know, since the phenolic traits are 
very well understood and established. You couldn't you couldn't just do that to a yeast and patent it because the the, the patent office would tell you it's um, it's obvious. Uh, so like that that change is you know well understood by people in brewing and and we know the genetic basis. We know how to make that change. So we're not going to give you a patent on something that is obvious, uh, even if it hadn't historically been made. So we didn't file patent applications on um, on those point mutation strains just because we would have had no hope in getting them patented. So, right. yeah, so in those those strains, it's certainly possible for others to take them and sell them. Um, nothing we could do about it. But we are doing some changes that, you know, we do think are novel and non-obvious and, and file patent applications. Um, so it is a tool we'll use. Um, but I mean, our goal is never to um, restrict what brewers are doing. Like uh, a lot of what brewers have historically shared yeast cultures with each other. And even if we sold a patented yeast strain to one brewery and they shared it with another, we're not going to sue that brewery. That, that's just kind of within the kind of normal expectations of the brewing community. Um, but what we would, you know, restrict is other yeast labs selling, right. making and selling those yeasts. So we're only trying to restrict other yeast labs. We're not trying to disrupt the norms of the, the brewing industry when it comes, you know, sharing. Yeast. That, yeah, so, so that brings around then. So how would you market that? I mean, what's involved in marketing an, a new yeast to, to a brewery? I mean, is it a... It sounds like it could be, you know, an awful lot of education, an awful lot of cost. Oh, yeah. There's definitely, a, yeah. So, I mean, to, uh, some of our newer strains involve vials, which are a class of compound that evokes a lot of like uh, tropical fruit, passion fruit, grapefruit, things like that. Um, and there are precursors of these vials that are naturally present in malt, uh, which a lot of people don't think about, and hops also. So um, there's tons of education that is involved in, teaching people how to use these strains and what to expect because they they are really kind of different. Um, I mean, they're putting out uh, huge aromas that you would not expect from normal yeast. Um, and there's all sorts of complex sensory things going on with these styles in combination with hops. So it's something we're still re researching and, you know, aren't at the point where we fully understand all the interactions uh, and sensory of the, the styles. So... Um, yeah, definitely. We so we go around to you know trade shows and talk to people about these. We go to um, you know state guild meetings where they're having technical talks and give talks on this stuff. So we we spend a lot of time uh, going out and talking to brewers directly about the technology involved, what to expect, and how to use them. Is that something you thought you'd be doing when you set up the company? Um, probably not. Not to this. Uh, not to this level, um, but I mean, it serves, you know, it's, it's great marketing too. I mean, to get in front of brewers and talk about the things we're doing um, and to talk, I think a lot of brewers are just inherently interested in the science of beer um, and, and love to see this stuff and to talk about this stuff and to put their own twists on it. I mean, you know, we, we have this pilot brew system, but we can't brew every single variable, you know, brewers come up with things that we weren't even thinking about. Um, so it's, you know, it really gets their wheels turning and, and experimentation going and exciting for everybody. Yeah, I think I think anybody who knows a brewer will say, yeah, I mean, most of the styles they come up with, they, you know, they're doing it for their own interest and then hope that yeah. there's a market in, in many, many cases. Otherwise, exactly. they're all stuck with the laggers in day one, you know? Right. Um, so, you know, it's been very interesting. I mean, I, I have absolutely no idea how this worked. Um, so... You were saying in America, there's not too many, that there's only a handful of yeast labs. I don't know what there is in the rest of the world. Do you have a clue for, for what's out 
than the rest of the world? Or um, I mean, there's uh, stuff popping up every once in a while. I mean, like we've seen uh, some kind of startups in the UK. There's like two in Australia that we've seen that have started recently, which. Um, you know the just the num the sheer numbers are uh, in the U.S. We've got you know like nine thousand breweries, uh, which is a, a lot of potential customers for the number of yeast labs we have here. Uh, whereas Australia, I think, is somewhere in the about five hundred to eight hundred breweries, uh, which you know so they're they're fighting over fewer breweries. Those two have a, a you know fewer breweries yeah. per yeast lab. Uh, no, more breweries, uh, fewer breweries no, per sure. yeast lab than uh, than than we have in the U.S. Um, so the, the, it's just very different. Uh, uh, and, and the culture, the, the yeast culture is different around the world, you know, just because we've had liquid yeast available in the U.S. for a long time. That's kind of integrated itself into the craft brewing culture. Um, and that's the rest of the world, just because they haven't had that, have relied more on dry yeast, which have, you know, some shelf stability advantages and things like that, um, that they're, you know, some of these places I think are going to have to overcome just kind of the way things have been done for a long time, you know, like liquid yeast is more expensive, unavoidable. Um, so they're going to have to kind of change, change that culture. Um, and is, yeah. So is it a business of, yeah, it, it needs scale. I think it's what you're. Yeah. And, and we, you know, yes. And we, we started on a small scale and have grown to a larger and larger scale and, and have now some advantages of a larger scale. Um, and, yeah, so maybe you know, maybe they'll they'll find that niche and and grow that market gradually. Um, it, it's going to be a tougher slog. And yeah, and and at this case, well, I, I suppose yeah that there are a couple of advantages. Like if you're at least if you're closer to the brewers in Australia, then you you have you're doing what you were saying there. The education you can get out and talk to them, so you can get a market out of it. But yeah, and logistics are. Oh, I mean, like shipping has gotten so. Exp yeah, we we're I think making some headway in Australia, and it's hard to maintain that just because of the pandemic and the effect on shipping, and then the the war in Ukraine and uh, effect that that's had on like it's just wildly expensive to even just get our product to Australia. Um, and then the strength of the U.S. dollar versus every you know a lot of other currencies making things. It's yeah. just uh, international is tough right now. as headwind. Yeah. So the, so if anybody's watching, there is maybe for a, a limited time a bit of a niche you can get into before sure. before everyone else does. Um, all right. Well, um, I don't know. I, I'm sure you're you're probably very busy. I mean, it's early morning. You're only starting your your work day there. So um, I don't know if there was. I I have pretty much. I had no idea coming in to talk to you how the business worked or how you manage that. So it's been brilliant learning from you. Um, I'll let you go because you're busy. But is there anything I should have asked you that um, you think, God, why why didn't you ask me this? Um, no, I, I would just say if I mean, if, if you do have folks watching that are just interested in the science of beer, I'd say just, you know, pay attention to the stuff that we put on our um, website, our, you know, social media and all that stuff, because we do share the science where um, we're working on. So, you know, we do just kind of straight research into the haze, like what what is the molecular basis of, you know, haze and hazy IPA? Uh, we, we do research on these types of things and share it with people. Um, so. Uh, you can find, you know, tips um, by just following us on, um, you know, improving certain aspects of your beer. Right. So just yeah, because that's maybe something nobody or not many people think of is, yeah, that you're doing all this research on beers and stuff as well. It's not just, you know, producing the same yeast over and over. Like you said, you're doing molecular and genetic kind of um, experimentation and testing and all of that. So there's 
yeah, I mean, yeah. I took a look at the, the website. There's a huge amount of information there. I should have mentioned that. So if anybody wanted, it's omegayeast.com, isn't it? That's correct. Okay. Well, um, yeah, I'd encourage anyone there to go and um, go and check it out because there is a lot of information, a lot of, lot of stuff. Lot, you're doing a lot of exciting stuff as well, like you said, but things that maybe people aren't considering. So, um, so listen, Lance, that was brilliant. Um, I don't have any other questions. I wish I did, but I think you just kind of flooded my mind. So I'll probably come oh, up yeah. with about 20 more later when you're gone. But, um, but I guess, yeah, it's coming up towards 10 o'clock. I better let you get back to work, okay. I suppose. Sounds good. We'll, we'll talk some other time in the future. Okay. Okay.